Welcome to Ticking Stock with Kelly McMillan. If the name sounds like a business show to you, then you've got it all wrong. Kelly McMillan is the principal of McMillan Fiberglass Stocks and will talk about shooting for fun, competition, hunting, and self-defense. Now, here is your host, Kelly McMillan. Hi, welcome everyone. I'm Kelly McMillan. Uh, we got a uh, really packed show today, so I'm going to get right in it. We're going to start with our Collegiate Spotlight, and today we've got Brent here to talk to us a little bit about the school he's affiliated with. Brent, can you tell us uh, what school that is, what type of shooting program, and uh, any scholarships available, stuff like that? Hey, thanks for having me, Kelly. Um, yeah, I went to uh, Jacksonville State University down here in Alabama. Um, I was on the, uh, the small bore and rifle team, uh, the NCAA, um, and there's plenty of colleges out there. They're Division One sports, so they have um, all kinds of scholarship opportunities. Um, it's, a, it's a great, great program to get into. So now, uh, as familiar as I am with the university or the NCAA's shooting sports, it's all small bore, right? Uh, we shoot international air rifle as well. So along with the the three position small bore, we shoot um, all standing sixty shots. For, for so air it's, rifle. It, it's basically the Olympic sport. Exactly. Awesome. Yeah, we follow the same ISSF rules. A little bit altered, just for the fact that we're using teams. Whereas for ISSF, it's more individuals. Um, but we have a combined team score at the end of the match as well. So if we're giving young shooters. A little advice on how to get an education and possibly get it paid for and maybe uh, a track towards the Olympics, you would say basically shoot small bore and uh, international air rifle and go to as many matches as you can. Is that correct? Absolutely. I mean, there's the, you know, three position air rifle is great that the CMP puts on, but also, you know, the USA shooting hosts all kinds of the, uh, the international type events. Um, getting to go to, you know, Camp Perry down here in Anniston, out to the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, um, and even just your local matches, those are, you know, great places to get your name on a results list and have to get the coach's attention. Okay, where is Jacksonville State? Tell them a little bit about the campus, how to get in touch with them if you know the, uh, the website and, and how people will know how to get in touch with that program. Right, um, we're down here uh, just outside of Anniston, Alabama, um, great program. I was a business major, uh, loved it. Um, the weather's great. I'm actually from Pennsylvania, so it's a lot warmer down here. But if you go to jsugamecocksports.com, um, that's our athletic website. And, um, yeah, it's, uh, we, we've been doing very well. Um, all my four years that I competed, uh, we won conference championship. Um, then I was the assistant coach for the, the past two years, but we've got plenty of championships. I think almost every year since 2005. Uh, we've won the, the conference. There's a few years in there that we came in second. But it's a great program, you know, really strong. And we've, we've made appearances at the, the Nationals, National Championship, I think just about every year for the past probably at least, you know, 15 years as well. Let's talk just a little bit about the Nationals in case anybody wants to go to a match where they, they possibly could get recruited, at least let uh, college coaches see them. I would assume that would be it. Tell us uh, where that's held and, and what time of year. Um, actually, there, there's a few different Nationals. The NCAA Nationals changes from year to year. Uh, coaches are really busy at that, so not a lot of opportunity to speak to them. Um, but the uh, the Nationals for the CMP um, is going to be, I believe, in June or July this year up at uh, Port Clinton, Ohio, at Camp Perry um, at the national matches. 
Um, and then the other opportunities, coaches are going to be at Colorado Springs for the Junior Olympics. So if you qualify for that, the USA shooting, um, that's a great opportunity. But really, any of the, you know, the matches at Camp Perry or down here in Anniston, you'll see plenty of coaches there. Um, just flag them on down. Just going to make sure you follow the, the NCAA rules about being how, you know, your age and grade and everything else. Um, but if you're a senior, uh, there shouldn't be any kind of problem, you know, flagging down a coach saying, hey, I'm interested what information do you want from me and, you know, ask any kind of questions you want and they'll be happy to talk to you. Well, that's a lot of great information, Brent. Uh, Brent, thanks for being on the show with us, sharing us uh, uh, some information about Jacksonville State. Uh, Really appreciate it. Uh, Everyone, Brooks, I mean, Brent Books, I'm sorry. Yeah, (laughs) thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. Um, In the studio right now, I've got... uh, Brittany McMillan's here with me. She's kind of sitting in for Zev. Zev's uh, um, observing Rosh Hashanah and uh, taking the day off. I, I don't know that uh, it would be considered work if he were listening to the show. So you might, uh, you know, you might see him uh, sitting next to the computer wishing he were here. I know he likes to get on the air, but Brittany's here. If uh, she sees anything that she needs to to interject, she'll be in here. And uh, a little bit later in the show, we've got Cooper Balestrino, our IT girl here, that's going to share with us what's going on with uh, our social media. Uh, don't want to take any more time. I want to get right to our first guest. Um, if you've ever been involved in the shooting sports, you probably know this man. You've at least heard his name. But unfortunately, he's probably one of the biggest American heroes that uh, a lot of people don't know about. Uh, he's been one of my heroes for a long time. I met him for the first time when I was about 22 years old, and uh, he I was just a kid, and, and he was already an Olympian by that time and uh, still treated me with respect. Uh, just such a great guy. I want to introduce Lonis Wigger. Lonis, thanks for being on the show. You bet. I appreciate it, Kelly. Well, you know, if you were listening, we just had a, a university coach and, and former competitor on uh, w- that whole program started when I attended your 80th birthday. I heard all of those kids that talked about, well, actually not so much kids now, but, you know, talked about how they got their start at, at shooting in the university and then on through the Olympics. So I thought I wanted to do something to help that process because, frankly, not a lot of people know that the NCAA program has still has shooting available. Yeah, I think there's about uh, 30 teams that are still NCAA. But the NCAA programs and the Junior Olympic program, which comes at a little little younger age, are very important to us as international shooters, and these are the shooters that will represent us in future international competitions and Olympics. So <clears throat> these two programs are very important to USA shooting. You know, Lonis, you're a humble guy, and you really don't like to talk to yourself about yourself. But I'm I couldn't take all the time it would take to list all of your accolades. But there is one thing that I really want our listeners to know, and uh, you were voted one of the top 100 American Olympians of all time, the only shooter in that group of 100. But what I think is really impressive, uh, Michael Phelps, the swimmer, almost everybody knows who he is. Uh, he had lots and lots of gold medals, but in his time in his swimming career, he only set nine, I think it was nine, uh, seven, seven world records. And in your time in shooting, you had, was it 29 world records during the time you were competing? Well, 29 for sure. There, 
there was talk there might have been four more when they changed the uh, uh, the target size way back in the 80s. And we happened to shoot a competition where we shot the team matches. So since it was shot the first time, it was a world record. But I don't claim those. I only claim the first 29. Of that 29, 13 were individual. Well, that that's a really huge statistic when you think about what you know most other people uh, ever have an opportunity to set one world record that's really uh, um, a big deal but you know, for you to have that many is just incredible uh, I know one thing that's really you know close to you and because I spent so much time with you uh, the group for your birthday we heard a lot about how you're really all about giving back to the sport and, and being involved with the kids so um, Talk a little bit about why that's important to you, uh, and then we'll give you a chance to, to let our listeners get to know you a little bit better and, and how you got involved in shooting. Well, shooting has been my whole life. Uh, started when I was about 10 years old, and uh, figured out that uh, after meeting some of the shooters at the marksmanship unit in Fort Benning, Georgia, the Army Marksmanship Unit, I decided that was the route I wanted to go. So when I got out of college, I applied to get into the Army, and I went to the marksmanship unit. And the, my 25 years in the military, uh, most of it was at the U.S. Army marksmanship unit, except for two tours in Vietnam. So I was very fortunate to uh, get into the Army and get into the shooting program because that was the they gave me the opportunity to excel. And without that opportunity, it would never have happened. So, you know, I've got the Army Marksmanship Unit to thank profusely because they gave me the opportunity. I had to do the work, but they gave me the opportunity to do that. Well, when we were in Colorado Springs just recently, you talked about the junior program that you forced your your team at, well, I wouldn't say forced, but you coerced them into working with the, the juniors in the local area. Um, tell us about that program and, and what the results of that happened to be. Well, we we formed a junior program at Fort Benning uh, in the mid-70s, uh, somewhere in there. And I kind of took over the program about 77. And uh, we would run a class, basic class, and get juniors involved. So we would end up with about 35 of them and going through the class in September, and out of 35, I might get uh, 10 that would stick with the program. And then by spring, out of that 10, if I had two or three left for my main club, I was very fortunate that they would become part of the members of the main club in the next fall. And so we always carried about 15 or maybe as high as 18 juniors in the junior program there, the junior club. And I was... uh, I spent a lot of time working with the with the juniors, and I thought it was really important to us. And a lot of our juniors came out of that program at Fort Benning, went on to uh, going to the, to the uh, uh, Army, Navy, and, and Air Force um, schools. And a lot of them went on to NCAA programs where they shot well, became All-Americans. And many of them went on and represented the United States in international competition. So... I feel like that was a result of our junior program. And juniors, to me, we don't have enough people shooting 
at that level, and we don't have the depth, we're very fortunate to win medals in international because we have such a small group of people that are dedicated enough to get to that level. And if we have a better junior program, I think we have a chance to have more kids involved and hopefully in the long run we'll have more depth on our team and, uh, and you know, we'll be capable of going to other countries and winning medals. I think it, it will help. I know right now we're very, very short in men's rifle. We, we just don't have any depth. We've got kids shooting, and they're shooting pretty good, but they're not shooting at the world level. And I've always said, you know, you, you have to first learn how to shoot, and then you have to learn how to win. And it takes a while, even after you become a good shooter, to learn how to handle the pressure and become a winner. And that's part of the whole program. And we just don't have a program that will fund those kids after they get out of the, the college programs. It takes another four or five years for them to get to the point they're capable of winning in, in the world. And it, it costs a lot of money. And that's the reason in this, uh, in my birthday thing that they just did for me, uh, we, we had a fundraiser with it. And we haven't raised a lot of money, but we raised $200,000. And hopefully we'll get more. Uh, but it's going to go to the junior programs and help our juniors get better so they can represent us in the future. They are our future. Now, I know a lot of sports, they, they kind of like to get the competitors before they get into the university, uh, unlike the major team sports, um, so that they can get direct coaching from some people. For instance, if, if kids were in, involved in the junior Olympic program, is is it a focus of the shooting program to get them to go to the university? Well, I don't know why I can say that is in reality, although we want to see them go on and go to the college program, especially the NCAA, because we have some good teams and they, <clears throat> excuse me, they learn, you know, how to shoot there. And, uh, you know, we had the gal that came out of West Virginia, won the gold medal in Rio as a freshman in college. And uh, that's just almost unbelievable that she did that because that just doesn't happen. She just didn't have the background, you know, for it, but it, it worked out for her. So that was great that it did. But we She just more. didn't know she wasn't supposed to win, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, you know, that has something to do with it. I, yeah. I won my first medals in Tokyo in 1964. In 1963, I, you know, I was a nobody. I, I couldn't. I couldn't break a, a score to come close to winning anything. And that year with a new gun and, and good ammo, uh, everything kind of came to a peak for me, and every time I shot, it was a little better. And, you know, I don't know to this day how I won. Uh, I, I was just green. I was, I was grass green, and I was fortunate to be there. And, and how, how I managed to shoot those scores while I was over there, you know, I never have figured it out. And I think you might say that maybe I was too dumb to realize, you know, what I was doing. And there may be something to that. One of the things that I found really intriguing is that you said that it took you about five years to learn to shoot. And it took you about another five years to learn how to win. Tell me the difference. Well, you can learn how to shoot. 
and it takes a long time to learn how to shoot and get your scores to the level that you can win in the world. It takes a lot of effort, a lot of hard work, and a lot of dedication, and a lot of desire. And you, once you get to that point and you start shooting those kinds of scores, then you get entered in international competitions, World Cups and other types of competitions. And even, even though when you're still learning to shoot, you get to do some of that too, but you get some experience in some of the international competitions. But once you, you're capable of shooting that score and getting on the firing line in a big competition and doing it is different. And it's all mental. And you have to learn that through a lot of training and, uh, uh, and hard, hard work and competitions and learning how to shoot well in competitions. But it, it's mostly mental. And you, you have to be able to get into a competition. You've got to be well prepared. And you've got to be able to shoot the score in the competition that you're capable of in order to win. And after a while, after you start winning a little bit, then you get better and you get better. And in some of the major competitions, then you start to win. And, uh, you know, the competition in the world is is unbelievable now. Uh, practically all of the countries that shoot, uh, their shooters are military or they're paid by the government. And uh, you take the Chinese now. You know, they've got their depth in each event is probably 10, 12 people, and maybe more. Our depth maybe is two to three. So it's really hard to beat these people when they have that kind of depth. And it takes a lot of money to train these people. And there's not that many of them that are really capable either. Uh, you kind of weed them out as you go along. But out of 100 kids that you start out with, if you end up with three or four out of that 100 that actually go on and do anything, you're fortunate because it's hard work. And and kids don't want to do hard work. <laughs> they want things easy. And they think shooting is easy, but it's, it's, it's easy to pull the trigger, but it's not easy to win. And after a while, they learn this, and usually they end up quitting because they figure it's just too difficult for them to do. I'll do something different. And in a lot of cases, it's exactly true. You don't, you don't keep many of the good ones, and there's not that many out there. But uh, the good ones have to be able to want to do this. It comes from the heart. It comes from desire. How bad do you want it? And that really determines whether you are going to be a world or Olympic champion or not. It comes from your heart. Let's talk about that for a minute, Lonis. Uh, if if I had a, a grandson who, let's, let's say he's 14 years old and he's been shooting for about six years and he's starting to really show some signs... Does the, the U.S. Olympic Training Center, do they have a live-in program? And if so, at what age are, are they um, eligible to come live at the, at the training center and train with the Olympians? Well, first of all, I'd like to say, if you've got a 14-year-old grandson that's shooting, does he like what he's doing? In other words, does he want to shoot? Does he want to get better? Because I see so many fathers that push their kids. And the kids really don't care that much about it. They do it because Daddy wants them to. And these kids never really amount to anything. They never go anywhere. So it's, uh, it depends on the kid. And, it, and the kid has to want to do it. He can't 
have to do it because he's that lousy. And I see that a lot, and I talk to a lot of parents about that. The kid has to have this desire, built-in desire, that he wants to achieve, that he wants to win. Now, as far as the other part of the question, uh, yes, we do have uh, in, in uh, uh, what would I call it, in-house training, uh, resident athletes. And most of these residents are usually college graduates and uh, been in NCAA programs, and they're kind of at the level where they're shooting, they're shooting decent, and they, they have to make a decision. Okay, I just got out of college. I have a degree, and maybe I've got a family. You know, I need to work. And, but I would really like to see if I'm good enough to go on in the shooting sport. So we bring in a lot of these kids, and they work for a year or two. And most of them don't pan out because of the problems of a family life. And they have that to worry about, plus they have that degree they think they should go on and do. And they're trying to shoot and focus on shooting, but they're not focused on shooting. They're focused on their other problems. And so most of them, some of them eventually go through the program and pan out, but not, not that many because they don't really have the opportunity. Now, the, the answer to, to solve that problem is we need to pay them salary. And I'm not talking about a grant. I'm talking about a salary of thirty or $35,000 a year so they can live on it, and it's like a job. And you would qualify to be that resident, and you would be given so much time and the coach should be working with them to determine whether the kid has got, does has has the uh, the guts or whatever you want to call it to go on and be good, and you weed them out if if they they can't get it. But when I was in the army, it was my job, and when I went on the range to shoot, that was my job to to shoot, and I didn't worry about my family because I was getting a paycheck, and I had a house and two cars and a wife and two kids, and that cost a hell of a lot of money. But I made enough money in the Army, which wasn't a lot then, to get by. And I could focus on shooting instead of having to worry about where's the next dollar come to feed my family. And so these kids that come in here, a lot of them have the capability as residents to go on, but they don't really, really don't have the opportunity because they have too many other problems. Now, the shooters in the rest of the world are not like that. We're fighting that. We just don't have that kind of money, and I wish we did. That we could, we could say keep about say, ten residents and and pay them thirty, thirty-five thousand a year, so they could focus on their shooting. And it wouldn't take long to figure out whether the kid has it or doesn't have it, because it's all about desire. So <laughs> I hope that answers your question. That's yeah, that's my, and I, that's my answer anyway. I think that that word desire really is the crux of the whole problem. Uh, kids these days, they, they have an idea about what they want, and even if they get into shooting and they, and they kind of like it, um, they want to achieve stuff right away. They don't want to have to work hard for it. But uh, I wanted to go back to one thing you said, and you said they quit because it's too hard. Uh, I'm, you don't know because you've never competed at an international or Olympic level in any other sport, but I'm assuming that making the Olympics in shooting is no less difficult or no more difficult than any other sport. I, I would oh, yeah. think that 
I think that the same thing that a shooter has, someone who wants to play tennis, someone who wants to play golf, and I'm, I'm trying to name the ones that are less of a team sport that where they're actually a, a track and field where they're competing as an individual. Um, and, and yes, you shot on a team and, and you tried to win for the team, but you were also competing strictly for yourself as an individual. And that's the, the comparison I was trying to make. I think there is just something in every elite athlete that achieves that level that isn't in the normal person, no matter what kind of talent they have. There's probably, and I always said, they always talked about Dr. Merriweather, the, the track star who who never ran a, a, a sprint in his life until after he got out of college and was a doctor. And he just thought, well, he would start training and, and found out he was pretty fast and, and was as fast as just about anybody at the world in the world at, at his distance. But I think there are far more people like that who have that skill and that capability who never get an opportunity to find out that they like it or have it um, than there are people who, you know, think they have it and find out they just don't. So um, I don't know how these kids can learn whether they're going to have that drive, desire, and discipline in order to be able to get to the level to see whether they have the skill or not. Well, that's why we have these these programs and we do we do have our junior olympics in our ncaa program which is our feeder system and i'm glad we have it because if we didn't we wouldn't have anything at one time the u.s army was where everybody came from that they went into the army to shoot and that's where all of our good shooters came from and we're, we're not getting them out of the army like that anymore because now they can only recruit uh people that uh, as enlisted and uh, not officers. And when I went in, they enlisted practically everybody. It was that they uh, they brought into into the military were were officers, lieutenants. And uh, uh, right now, when you you go through school and graduate, get your degree, you don't want to go into the army as an E three. You know, you want to get a job and support your family. Yeah, you'd like to shoot, and you really would like to focus on it. But most of them really can't do it and don't do it. And and, and most people, like you said, you never had the opportunity to find out whether they were that good or not. It's, it's probably true. But it usually takes years and years of training. And it's full-time training. It's not training on the weekend to find out whether you are good enough. So, like you say, most most people don't don't have that opportunity and don't take that opportunity and don't put in the time and effort it takes to become champions. And it's, like I said before, it comes from the heart. It comes from desire. It comes from how bad you want it. You know, I trained years and years and years to get to where I was. And I never, it never came easy for me. I was not uh, what you call talented. It was Nothing was easy. I had to work my butt off to get a can. And the guys that I shot against, were darn good, and it was tough to beat them, and I had to work double hard in order to beat them. And uh, I always found that the people that really wanted it and were willing to put in the effort are the ones that usually end up, in the end, winning. 
One of the things that you spoke about, and, and almost everybody that got up and had a little story to tell about you at your birthday had talked about what a competitor you were, but I think that goes without saying you can't get to where you've gotten in the uh, the heights of the shooting community without being competitive. But I think that uh, I, I wanted to get up and tell a story, and I'm going to tell it now because I think it's important. I don't know that you've ever heard this story, but I think one of the things that makes the difference between somebody who can compete at the level that you've been at and somebody who can't, and that is the willingness to do whatever it takes to win. And I'm, and I don't mean that by cheating or anything else. You, you have morals and ethics and you have to follow those, but, but you're willing to put in the extra time you're willing to do. First time I ever met you, you were shooting at the, um, uh, National High Power uh, Silhouette Championships, and you uh-huh. were shooting a rifle that had an HS Precision stock on it. it. Was an HS Tom Houghton had just bought the company from Atkinson, and he was pretty new. and And you had a problem with the stock, and and you had mentioned to someone, I wonder if Gail McMillan would fix it. They knew we were in town. Uh, it would, you know, the match was here at, at Ben Avery, and and somebody called and said, you know, Gail. Uh, Lonus Wigger's having a problem with this stock. He wants to know if you'll take a look at it. And, of course, as soon as my dad hung up, he told me the story. I said, what would you tell him? He says, oh, I wanted to tell him. Hell no, I'm not going to. I said, no, but what did you tell him? He said, yeah, bring it out. So, but what that shows me is as, as focused as you were on winning, kind of, being able to swallow your pride and say, hey, look, I'm shooting another person's stock, but I'd like your help. Will you help me out? In order to give you an opportunity to win. And that's something that a lot of people's ego just probably wouldn't have let them do. And and I thought that, you know, that probably said more to me about the kind of person that you were and what you were willing to do to, to be a winner than anything else I've ever heard. So uh, I wanted to share that story with you. Now, I honestly don't believe I remember whether you won that match or that national championship or not. I think it might have been your first silhouette championship. Uh, I could be. I won it twice, but it was back in the in the seventies. Yeah, right. So this was early in in the McMillan stock career, just like it was HS Precision. But I think it was your first. I think you did win that that particular national championship, and um, you know it. it just knowing about that whole story has really meant a lot to me over the years. How do you set that focus and say, okay, I'm, I want to win and whatever I'm going to do that's within my power to make that happen, I'm willing to do and, you know, do the things that the other guys don't, you know, shoot the extra thousand rounds a week or whatever. That's a good question. I don't know. It comes from within. It comes with how bad do you want it? And and I, I as you know, I'm very, very competitive. And I, I want to win. When I shoot, I shoot to win. I don't shoot. Well, I, these days, when I do shoot a little bit, it's more for fun, like team challenge. Uh-huh. When I was shooting international, you know, to me, I shot to win. I did whatever it took to win, what the preparation, the training, the, the the equipment, the barrels that I used and and whatever. It you know, I tried to make it all perfect. But I shot and trained too. And you can't become a Olympic champion training on weekends. It's full time. It's a full time effort. 
not many people have that opportunity. Being in the Army did give me that opportunity, and I took advantage of it. There's a lot of a lot of people, a lot of people, kids in the in the marksmanship unit that are just there and they're just shooting, but they're not taking advantage of their opportunity. They're not working at it, and uh, there's not that many people around that are like that. I believe I happened to be with a group in the '60s and '70s, and I talked to at the party the other night about five or six of us, seven of us. You know, we, we pushed each other. We all wanted to win. We were all had the same feeling, and. We all wanted to be on the podium. So we pushed each other. And we didn't have good coaches. We learned from each other, and we pushed each other. When we shot a match, we shot against each other. And like I said, if uh, I had to beat my teammates if I was going to get a medal. And then when we went to a big international competition somewhere, here again, I had to beat my teammates or I didn't get a medal. It was yeah. that, that strong. You know, they were that good. And, and that was fortunate for me to have those people there because it forced me to train and do what I needed to do to get to that level. And that's where I wanted to be, and I was willing to do whatever it took. And there's not too many people around that have that desire, that inner desire that I had to win. I wanted to win. Obviously not cheating, but I wanted to win. That's the reason there's only one Lonus Wigger. Hey, Wig, I really want to thank you for being on the show. It's been awesome. You, I have never been shy about telling you how much you've meant to me over my career and uh, how much I love the fact that you've always treated me with respect and as an adult. Uh, and, uh, you know, it's, it's just so refreshing to see someone who's uh, accomplished everything that you have still be a down-to-earth guy and uh, be willing to take a half an hour with me and, and spend it on my radio show. Thanks a lot for being on and definitely want to have you back when we got a little more time i, I really uh, i really appreciate it and i also appreciate all your support thanks it's it's been my pleasure i appreciate it and i want to ask all of our listeners to stay tuned for the next uh, couple of minutes while we take a commercial break For exciting video content live and on demand, visit www.voiceamerica.tv for exclusive content you just can't find anywhere else. That's voiceamerica.tv. Tune in now. For over 40 years, Macmillan USA has been at the leading edge of the gunstock industry. The company was born out of the desire to improve and perfect form, function, and precision with every one of their premium fiberglass stocks. From tactical to hunting to competitive shooting, Macmillan stocks are designed to dominate. Their signature three-way adjustable butt plates, adjustable cheek pieces, rail mounts, and adapters provide a versatile platform built on performance. Over 65 custom finishes are available, ranging from solid colors to camouflage. Check out the Macmillan website for hundreds of stocks available for immediate delivery. And for those wanting something more specialized, call the knowledgeable and friendly staff at Macmillan for a complete list of options at 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. Again, that's 877-365-6148 or visit MacmillanUSA.com. 
We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Your internet flagship station for sports, Voice America Sports. You are listening to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Now back to the show. Hey, welcome back, everyone. Uh, Thanks for sticking around through that commercial break. Uh, Man, what a great guest. What a great shooter. What a great individual. Lonis Wiggers, really, um, you know, if you have a man crush on anybody, uh, you know, he's mine for sure. Uh, Such a terrific guy. Right now, I've got Cooper Balestrino, our IT girl in, I mean, our uh, social media girl in, who's going to share a little bit about what we've got going on with social media. Cooper? Hey, guys. Kelly, thanks for having me on. I'll try and make this quick so we can get back to our guests. Uh, As always, I would first like to invite you guys to follow our Facebook and Instagram pages. For updates on our weekly show and guests, please like Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan on Facebook and follow our Instagram at Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. And of course, for all things McMillan, like our Facebook page, McMillan Fiberglass Stock, and follow our Instagram page at McMillan underscore stock. Also, with the holidays coming up, be sure to sign up for our newsletters. We have some great uh, deals planned for this season. You can sign up on our website at macmillanusa.com. And last week, we, or I, tried to give a little announcement about the McCubed line, but unfortunately, I was having trouble with my mic, so I'll uh, try that again this week. Uh, The McMillan family is pleased to announce the uh, release dates of our first polymer stocks. Uh, the McCubed injection molded stocks will be unlike anything on the market. We have spent countless hours working with engineers and firearms enthusiasts to, in desi- to design the ideal polymer stock that will not break your bank. Uh, we have two stocks being released, the first being our tactical stock, The Legend, which was molded after our best-selling A5 stock. This stock is currently designed to accept Remington 700 short and long and will be debuting this October, which is in a couple of weeks. So get excited. (laughs) Uh, Then we have our hunting stock, the Tradition, which was molded after our Game Scout stock. The Tradition is similar in design to the Remington Classic hunting stock, but but it has the popular McMillan A3 vertical pistol grip. And this one will be debuting in early 2018. And lastly, we are excited to announce that the price of these stocks will range from $275 to $425, depending on the options that you select. Awesome. Good job, Cooper. Thanks for sharing that with everybody. Yeah, we're excited about the uh, MC3 stocks. Uh, We'll probably be up in Colorado uh, in a couple of weeks uh, checking the first ones out of the mold, make sure everything is as we expect them to be. We're pretty sure that they will be. We're starting to take pre-orders October 1st and then um, for the legend. And we expect to have the tra- uh, tradition available first, uh, first week of uh, January, if not by SHOT Show for sure. So th- thanks for sharing that with us, Cooper. Appreciate you being here. 
Okay, our next guest, uh, you know, he's he's having a real tough time. He uh, happens to live in Houston, and I'm just so happy that um, he's at a, a position where he can actually take a little bit of time to share with us. I met uh, Chris uh, a number of years ago when he had an idea about putting a website together that was going to be kind of a one-stop shop for information and material um pertinent to the firearms industry. Uh, he asked me if I wanted to be involved in, and because it was a new process and new new website, and I said, sure, Chris, you, you tell me what you want me to do, and, and I'll be involved. So I've been involved with concealandcarry.org since the very beginning. Chris Chris Dixon, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to work with you this many years. Well, let's uh, first off, let's tell our listeners what the website is, what it's about, what you're trying to do, how you're accomplishing that. Oh, that sounds like a plan. Well, like most ideas you put out, like McMillan Stocks keeps growing and changing with times, Concealing Carry Network has continued to change and mold itself as I started out back in June of 2013. What I, what I was trying to do is exactly what you said. I was trying to have a one-stop shop where you, if new people could find some information on different type of products, where to find an FFL dealer, different manufacturers, where to find shooting ranges, and I wanted to have one-stop shop where they can come in, and I'd never seen nothing like it. So I took the time and the financial, op- well, took my, my money, and I put together and created this website. But since then, I've added a forum. I've added libraries with different podcasters and different programs like the Millen Taking Stock and several other shows so that people can come to my site and get a little bit of information or possibly other sources for information that gives them a lead to more information. So if you're uh, new to hunting or you've been in hunting for all your life, you'll find something interesting on our site. One of the things that I want to point out, and let's do this very carefully so everybody gets it right, your website is not that intuitive in terms of getting to it. It's concealincarry.org. First off, it's a .org and not a .com. I mean a .net, I'm sorry. A .net. .net, yes, sir. Yeah. And so not a dot com. The word, the word conceal, the letter N, the word carry, dot net. Okay, so everybody's got that. www.concealincarry.net. Um, and so, do you sell products on your store? Uh, no, sir, we don't. Uh, I don't have an FFL at this time and really not really looking forward to it. There's so many opportunities. And I don't want to be in competition with the people that I have that we're trying to help get to their business. So for me, it was more clear, we don't sell a single product on our site. We steer people to people that do. So if you're looking to find different products, we'll give you a source to go look at. Uh, we've got friendships, we've got relationships, we've got affiliates with a whole lot of people. But we ourselves don't sell anything except for advertising to the farms industry. And so those ads are included with a, a link to their website and, and the opportunity to buy that product if somebody sees something they want. Absolutely. When you start out a business, a lot of these companies will charge an absolute arm and leg, huge fortunes for advertising. As any business owner knows, your, your advertising is one of your largest expenses behind payroll. So my goal was to let everybody that had a business have a very affordable way uh, to basically advertise in multiple different ways, and it keeps growing as we keep expanding our, our, our services. 
I notice you've been using social media as a way to promote the website because you tag us on a lot of things and, and you stay involved with a lot of things that we do. Um, explain to your our listeners uh, how they can stay up with you on social media. Absolutely. Uh, we're extremely active on Twitter and starting to get ex- into uh, Instagram. Uh, we're basically conceal, letter N, carry, N-E-T, on Twitter, we've currently got 46,000 followers at this time, and I've got over 125,000 posts we've done since 2013. And I send out an automated about 120 or more tweets every single day. One thing I want to ask you about, because I, I mentioned that you're in Houston, um, let's talk a little bit about you and your situation. Uh, tell us what happened when the storm came through with you personally. Wow. Uh, I live in Dickinson, Texas. Nobody has ever heard of Dickinson, Texas until this last news break. We uh, are a small town. We're right between Houston and Galveston, right on 45. Very small. But uh, we're sitting also by Dickinson Bayou. So for the last three hurricanes, we've actually had no rising water, no issues. Our house is built for, for hurricane protection. But this particular storm that hit Corpus Christi actually swung, and we got the rainy side of it, and those red bands absolutely stuck on top of my house. So Dickinson, Texas got literally 12 to 14 hours of nonstop torrential rain, and uh, nobody slept that night. This was, this was Saturday night when the storm was really hitting, and I stayed up all night long. I even took a video as we watched the water come up our driveway. And, you know, our worst fear became reality when the next morning, about 5 a.m., water started coming into our house. So we actually ended up getting about an inch of water in our house, and we were the least damaged house in anywhere near me. My neighbor to my left got six inches to a foot, and almost everybody behind me was living in a lake. So we, we still had pretty – you'd be surprised how much damage one inch will do. There goes your carpet. Yeah, I was going to ask you to explain exactly what one inch of water can do. I know because I happened to be living in my friend's house one time when a pipe broke, and in the portion of the house that the water collected, there was about three inches. So I know what what it costs, but explain to our listeners how devastating even an inch of water can be. Well, a a lot of people don't realize that absolutely everything on your ground floor, your kitchen, your, your uh, carpeting and everything else you have down below is a perfect sponge to soak up and hold water. And you really can't get it all out. The water that gets onto your kitchen and stuff, you may or may not be able to get that out. Your water that actually comes through your wall, your insulation works like a wick, pulls it right up into the wall. So if you ever get water in your house, you have got a huge mess. If it gets to three inches, you've probably lost your refrigerator, your uh, so your stove, your dishwasher, and all your other things that you've got on your, most of us have on the first floor. So we, we were able to add this up. We lost a foot of sheetrock. Uh, we lost all of our flooring. And we're not really sure yet about our kitchen. And it's in excess of about fifteen and almost $20,000 worth of damage. That's terrible. Uh, you know, I, I really feel for you. I know how tough that's got to be, and I know how hard you've been working lately to, uh, you know, provide for your family. So when you got this thrown on top of you, it, it, 
almost sometimes feels like it's not worth the hassle. But, um, you know, our, our thoughts go out to you. We hope you get all this taken care of soon and you get back to normal. How did the, the um, I don't know who houses your server and, and that, none of this affected your website at all? Not a bit, sir. I've, I've actually got the original company that, that sold us a software. We've actually got them housing it. So the nice thing about being an Internet business is your, your house could not be here and you still have a business going. So it's unlike a lot of brick-and-mortar businesses. Also, I'll, I'll say this, that this was a very unique experience. In my house, I have four grandchildren, a stepdaughter, my daughter, my mother-in-law, my wife, and myself. There was nine of us in this house. So to try to get people a feel of this, I, I felt compelled to write an article on it. So on my website, on my blogs, I've got three or four of the videos, and I just I did just a layman's version of an article of what it actually feels like to go through this because you can't react to it when you're the leader of the house, Mr. Kelly. You've got to make sure you're calm to keep everybody else calm. I understand that completely. Yeah, everybody expects a lot of us, don't they? They do, sir. And, you know, that's that's part of being a man, and that's part of being a leader of a household. Yep, and that's what we've been taught our whole lives, that we're supposed to be able to take care of stuff like that. Yes, sir. So the website uh, is doing well. Uh, you still see a, a traffic increase each year. You, I mean, it, is it growing as you had hoped it would? It, well, you, you never grow as fast as you'd like to. But one thing we found that's been extremely effective is I've been able to uh, monetize our our uh, referral program that we've been doing on Twitter and such. A lot of companies that come up, most of them are mom and pops. McMillan Fiberglass Stocks have been around for a long time. You've got a huge reputation. But the brunt of our industry is mom and pop or somebody coming into it, starting up. They're an expert in their field. They know what they're doing. But when it comes out to doing social media and it comes out to getting their product out there, they hit a wall that they've never experienced, and they're going out here, well, I've got this great product. Now what do I do? Well, that's where I step in. I've been in sales, and I've been in management my entire life. And I'm, Mr. Kelly, I'm not young anymore, sir. So I'm utilizing my experience with sales, and I'm using my experience with marketing. Then I'm helping for a very low amount of money get their products out in front of people. And it takes a very long time to start getting twenty, thirty, or forty thousand dollars. I'm sorry, twenty or thirty thousand followers on social media because that doesn't happen overnight. You're absolutely correct. We don't have that many, so and we've been at it for a while. Um, we're in a very focused uh, industry, uh, portion of the industry, so we really uh, work very hard to get people who are absolutely interested in our product and not just somebody who's a gun nut. So I understand what you're saying. And how does that translate? You said you've been able to monetize that. How, how do you reward yourself for helping somebody else sell products? Well, I'd always said I want to give somebody more than I ever ask back. So I've made this beyond affordable. I only charge $25 a month, and I'm only promising 30 posts a month, but I, I virtually always give more than that, but for a product. So if you sell hosters, if you sell ammo, if you have any particular product, even remotely gun-related or something that gun-related people would like, what I do is I point them back to your site. But here's the thing. Twitter doesn't want you to be salesy on there or you can get banned. So what we do is a referral list. So if I like 
McMillan stocks, I'll say, hey, check out this new McMillan stock they've got over here. It's real interesting. Go to this particular site and look what they've got going on. That's a referral, and it doesn't sell, sound like a salesperson with a pitch. That's how we've actually made this work extremely well, and we get a lot of people that follow the links. I've been hearing a lot about Facebook lately, and since the news came out that uh, the Russians actually bought a bunch of ads on Facebook, and you know that they didn't know about it, and I'm I'm crying bull because anytime I paste an ad, first off they tell me they, that it's not appropriate for their their forum, and if I try to you know word it and use kind of code so that it'll get by, uh, it doesn't take long until they find it. Then they threaten to, you know, put me in Facebook jail for 30 days and, and basically keep me from accessing any of my my friends or any of the followers. So, yeah, if they didn't know that that was from the Russians, I'd be really surprised. If they thought that it wasn't going to be found out and, you know, decided to take the money anyway, which is, you know, what I kind of suspect – I, I think that that's uh, probably what happened. But all of them, you know, Facebook, Google, they, they don't take firearms-related ads. And so we try to sell anything. We get dinged for it. Absolutely, sir. And like I said, a lot of this stuff, too, if you're trying to make it look like an ad, uh, it, it's one of the first things that they target and try to pull. So I, I try to very much word it differently. And then I also blend it in. I use a a program called Buffer, and what I do is I have these pre-staged. I've got 120 posts that I have timed out. So I'll mix them up. They'll sometimes repeat once or twice a day because a lot of people don't realize that Twitter is much like the radio. You have so much stuff going through it that people really only see what they're going to have while they're currently online. So if you want to be effective in Twitter, I'm going to give you a very quick free hint. Have multiple ads, but you got to rotate them. But have them where they come through different times during the day because people are on at different times. And you'll get a lot more effective feedback based on that, and you'll get a lot more people who will come through to your sites. Well, you know, that makes a lot of sense because uh, I'm not a Twitterer by any means, but I have a Twitter account. And when I open it up and look at it, I look at what they put at the top of my list and scroll down maybe a couple of pages, and that's it. And, you know, if you have 100 followers and they're all active Twitters, you don't even see everything that they posted. And that's just at that particular time. So, yeah, I really understand what you're saying. Hey, Chris, I want to let you know we got about a minute left. Anything else you want to tell our listeners that uh, will help them in, in search of information and, and your website? Well, what I would say this, I'm also a share of information. I've got a blog that got recognized recently nationally. If there's an article that you've got that would help us with getting information out to the people and something you'd like to share, I share it for free. But I would ask people to, to join us and, and keep this company going because we're a one-of-a-kind company. We're not asking well, a lot. You'll not find a, a, a least expensive place to advertise. So come join us and let me see where I can help you, and I'm also here to help educate you. Well, I appreciate you being on the show, Chris. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Good luck with your uh, remodeling from the uh, storm. I want to ask all of our listeners to uh, come back and, and see us next week. We'll be here on voiceamerica.com sports channel with Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. Go out and have a great weekend. Thank you for tuning in to Taking Stock with Kelly McMillan. 
Be sure to come back for more next Friday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time and 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Sports Channel. The weekend is here. Enjoy yourself. We'll talk again next week.